Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. First up on the show today, we welcome back journalist Kevin Gostola, managing editor at Shadowproof.com. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Guilty of Journalism, a political case against Julian Assange. We'll talk to Gostola about updates around the Assange case as we await the outcome of the extradition. We'll also discuss what this means for the future of journalism. Later in the program, independent journalist Sam Husseini joins the program to talk about his career as a journalist and how he's tried to forcefully, but within the parameters of the profession, question politicians about the most critical issues of the day. Husseini says questioning politicians at news conferences may actually be an underutilized antidote to censorship because journalists often don't ask the tough questions. On the Project Censored Show today, an hour on the state of our free press. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we welcome back Kevin Gostola. Kevin is a writer and publisher for Shadowproof.com. He curates a subscription newsletter, The Dissenter, and hosts The Dissenter Weekly. Both cover whistleblower stories extensively. He also co-hosts the Unauthorized Disclosure Weekly podcast with journalist Rania Kalik and contributed a chapter to the book In Defense of Julian Assange from Orr Books. Coming up here in the next month or two, Kevin has another book. It'll be coming out. It's called Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange, with a foreword by Abby Martin. Of course, listeners to the Project Censored show probably know of Kevin Gostola and Kevin's fantastic journalism, especially around whistleblowing and people like Julian Assange. This book will be out from the Censored Press and Seven Stories Press. Uh, it's slated to come out in late February. Kevin Gostola, you're here with us today. Welcome back to give us some updates on the Julian Assange case. Welcome to the Project Censored show, Kevin Gostola. And it's the first time talking to you in the new year, so happy new year, and I'm pleased to be back on the show. It is always wonderful to catch up with you. You have been at the forefront of covering not just the Assange case, but so many other significant whistleblower cases over the past decade. And you've really been a go-to source for us on this matter. So I thank you for coming back to the show to give our listeners the latest on what's happening with the Assange case. So very quickly, remind our listeners what exactly was going on with Assange when we last spoke. And then I know that you have a whole list of things that actually have happened, some of them as recently as a few days ago. Kevin Gostola. I think when I last spoke to you, we were talking about an upcoming appeal. Uh, we're still waiting for that to find out if the High Court of Justice in the UK is going to give Julian Assange and his legal team their day in court to challenge that ruling in which basically the extradition has been authorized for him to be brought to the United States and be put on trial. But in the last month and a half, we've had one, Daniel Ellsberg stepped forward to say that Chelsea Manning gave files to WikiLeaks, and when Julian Assange and WikiLeaks were working on the files, he was provided a backup of the files. So if Julian Assange is guilty, he says, I'm guilty too, and I should be prosecuted by the Justice Department. He, along with John Young of Cryptome.org, the site that has been around for, I think, multiple decades now, early days of the internet, publishing 
not only previously classified documents, but all sorts of government documents that have been released, the repository for information. He published the unredacted 250,000 plus U.S. cables that had the State Department and other U.S. officials in a big tizzy because they believe that activists, human rights people, anybody involved is as an informant or any agents that the State Department was working with were going to be vulnerable to retaliation because their identities were now known. John Shipton and Gabriel Shipton, Gabriel is Julian Assange's brother, John Shipton is his father, have been touring this documentary called Ithaca that has been getting wide acclaim. And that's one way they've been calling attention to his case. But we also know that Kristen Harofson, the WikiLeaks editor-in-chief, and Joseph Farrell, who works for WikiLeaks, they've been on a tour in Latin America or were on a tour in Latin America, meeting with heads of state like Gustavo Petro, the president of Colombia, notably meeting with Lula, who was just reelected as president of Brazil. And Lula says, obviously, that Assange should be freed and we should celebrate Assange for exposing what the CIA was doing behind the scenes. He knows as well as anybody what sort of security state forces are doing to conspire against his people. And then Vivian Westwood, within the last month, she died. And she was a kind of godmother figure in the punk scene, known musically as well as in the world of fashion. She committed a lot of her funds and resources to supporting Julian Assange. And in a rare event, I would say, we don't normally hear from Julian Assange, but Julian put out words that were attributed to him from Belmarsh Prison. And so we got to get something from him. He was hoping to attend her funeral, but the prison has denied him the ability to go and attend that funeral. So a lot of action going on around the Assange case, particularly the Ellsberg revelation was was quite stunning. I believe he did a couple interviews, at least few talking about really in a way, almost like taunting, like come after me kind of approach was Ellsberg. Yes. And this goes along with his work on nuclear war plans or nuclear weapons capabilities of the United States, because he had documents from the government that he said he had in his possession. So he's technically guilty of violating the Espionage Act with those files. And I know I recall some it's been at least a year, year and a half now that he had also come forward and said, you should be trying to prosecute me for taking these files. And I think he really wants to have a case. They're not going to take the bait, but he really wants to go before the Supreme Court and make the case that the Espionage Act is unconstitutional. You know, if he could do one more thing, he already is going to leave behind quite a legacy. And he was very gracious enough to endorse my book. And he has nothing but praise and has been very kind to me. But if he could do anything before he leaves this same space that we occupy, he would like to make the Espionage Act go away by going before the Supreme Court. That's an extraordinary and, and significant possibility. Although, like you suggested, it's, it's probably not going to happen. But putting it out there, I think, is really what needs to be going on. That topic, this discussion about the Espionage Act, about not just Assange, but so many of the whistleblowers, Kevin, that you've written about over the years, they share some common threads, even though if they may have different ideologies and they may differ in some areas, they all had one thing in common. They prioritized transparency and telling the truth, no matter what it meant to them. 
Exactly. And and sometimes they range from the extraordinary complex and, and they try your patience and you're, you're not really sure if you can get behind them 100%. And then sometimes they're really, really easy to support because they're friendly and really easy. One other thing I want to throw in here is that we've seen some behind the scenes activity. We know that in Australia, on Julian Assange's behalf, that the government has now turned sympathetic to Julian Assange. It's a very monumental shift for Julian Assange, his family, and his legal team there. They have the prime minister, Anthony Albanese, who is now sympathetic to Julian Assange. At least he says that he wants closure on the case. Now, we don't know what it means to bring this to a close. Let's just be clear here that a prisoner transfer, if you brought Julian Assange to Australian soil, had him finish a sentence there, you could call that closure to the case. So I don't know what he means by closure. But then you have Kevin Rudd, who has been appointed Australian ambassador to United States, and he is on the record of being supportive of dropping the charges against Assange. Now, he's very clear he's, he doesn't support WikiLeaks's work, but he thinks it's wrong that Julian Assange would be punished the way that he has been by the U.S. government, could potentially do a life sentence because of the fact that he published U.S. documents. Kevin Gastola, ShadowProof.com. You just mentioned something. You said the word punished. You said the past tense of that word. Well, he has been punished. That's what I wanted to get at here. So even if you mentioned in Australia, there's been some movement. And again, what the movement means or in what direction is not certain, but there's movement. They're saying things. Key people are saying things. How about here in the U.S.? Similarly, the legacy in the establishment press, the corporate media, they've been very hypocritical around the Assange case, other whistleblower cases. But even there, we've seen movement and a shift well, what we have at the end of 2022 was these media organizations coming together that benefited from the leaks. I believe they were cajoled into doing it because Holger Stark, who is from Der Spiegel and used to be the Washington, D.C. editor for their newspaper, Der Spiegel is one of the partners that WikiLeaks turned to, has always been the most supportive of the big three out of The Guardian and, and New York Times, uh, has never done this ridiculous nonsense where they attack and smear and, and and egg on the prosecution of Julian Assange by fueling it. He said it was time for everyone to come together and put out a very clear demand that the charges be dropped, particularly those organizations that benefited from the leaks. You have press freedom organizations, civil society organizations renewing their demands before the new year that Julian Assange be freed and that the charges be dropped. There was coverage in The Guardian from Eric Lichtblau, who is a very well-known former New York Times reporter who broke the warrantless wiretapping story with James Risen. And he did coverage of this, saying that pressure has been ramped up against the Justice Department. And so we see a lot of chatter, but what we don't have is any indication that the Justice Department has shifted their resolve in pursuing this case. Indeed. And again, I wanted to point out uh, two things in, in, uh, to reiterate. One, this is kind of the Johnny-come-lately approach. These are outlets that, for the most part, on one hand, benefited from WikiLeaks information, but were very quick to turn on Assange himself and on other whistleblowers so while it's certainly a welcome development, and of course Media Freedom Foundation Project Censored are one of the groups 
that's long been calling for Assange's freedom, his release. That's something we want unequivocally. But it's hard to trust these kinds of outlets given their mixed past. And we should remember that, at least. Luke Harding at The Guardian comes to mind. Some of the nastiest pieces and hit pieces came from, from those voices. The Guardian was very disappointing on this subject for a very long time. Well, in the forthcoming book that I have coming out, there's a whole chapter on the media aiding and abetting the prosecution. You can write a whole book on how the global press, Western press, if you want to call it that, has aided the United States government in demonizing and making it easy to go after and prosecute Julian Assange in this unprecedented case. But I focused on three particular examples that were referenced in the indictment and have played a big part in the extradition case. And you say Luke Harding. Luke Harding co-authored a book about WikiLeaks with David Lee, who was an executive editor at The Guardian. And in one of the most boneheaded moves in the story of WikiLeaks, David Lee publishes a password to an encrypted file that at some point in the middle of 2011 sees people making a connection between the file that they find online and the password in his book so that now there's a whole mess, a big scandal now that WikiLeaks has to deal with that crushes Julian Assange's reputation. It absolutely demolishes all the plans that WikiLeaks had to partner with media organizations and continue to go country by country by country to try to make sure these cables had the highest impact possible. And they couldn't do it anymore. They couldn't continue with the kind of project that they were, on. as it was unfolding, they had taken a lot of care to partner with organizations that had expertise that could be brought to those files. The other thing that I wanted to hit on the reiteration was the past tense. Well, it's actually a continuing issue, is that Assange has actually been punished. He's been punished for quite some time, regardless of what happens in the extradition with the Espionage Act case. How long has he been imprisoned, Kevin Gostola, already? Let's just take first Belmarsh, the, the high security prison in London. He has now been there since April of 2019. Uh, we're not far from that date. Uh, as we make another revolution around the sun, we are going to be seeing that he will be marking that it'll be a four years. He's so actually he's already had four Christmases that he's been in the security prison away from his this high security prison away from Stella Assange, away from his two children. His children are growing without him. Um, he's missing the best times of his children's lives. And uh, on top of that, he's in some form of arbitrary detention now since 2012, when he entered the Ecuador embassy. And he may even go before that because there was some time on house arrest related to those allegations in Sweden. And we don't need to open that box again. But just to be clear, there have always been major due process issues that have been raised by UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Niels Meltzer, and other people who have looked at that closely. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot with this. And I think that as much as the media and civil society organizations have come to the support of Assange, it also has to be said that there are real limitations to their advocacy. I have agitated and tried to move the committee to protect journalists away from their position that Julian Assange should not be designated a jailed journalist in their annual index. They refuse to put him 
in that list with other journalists who are targeted by China, Russia, and these other countries where it's a lot easier to support the journalists who are persecuted. And so far, they won't do what the Reporters Without Borders organization does because they do include Julian Assange in their annual list. And they claim that Julian Assange is not a journalist, but I've shown them their own definition of what it means to be a journalist. And Assange, you cannot argue, qualifies. It qualifies, and they still refuse to place him in their annual index, even though they are calling for charges to be dropped against Assange. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking with Kevin Gostola, the managing editor at shadowproof.com, writer at The Dissenter. We're talking about the case of Julian Assange, and we will continue that conversation with Kevin Gostola after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment today, we are honored to welcome back to the show Kevin Gostola. We have been in conversation about the extradition case of Julian Assange. Kevin Gostola is managing editor at Shadowproof.com, a writer at The Dissenter. He is also author of a forthcoming book called Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange, with a foreword by Abby Martin. That book will be out in late February from Seven Stories Press and Censored Press. We were earlier talking about Daniel Ellsberg, the great whistleblower from the Pentagon Papers. Dan Ellsberg says of Kevin's book, Guilty of Journalism, Kevin Gastola is a rare journalist who understands the abominable threat that the case against Assange poses to press freedom. Ellsberg goes on to say, he relies on Gastola's indispensable reporting, not only to stay informed about Assange, but also to follow developments in the wider war on whistleblowers. John Kuriakow, the CIA whistleblower, also says of Kevin Gostola that this is quite simply the finest work on the subject. Kevin Gostola, that's high praise coming from significant people in the whistleblower community, and we're certainly looking forward to the release of the book, and we'll have you back on to discuss it. You've already referenced it in our conversation. So, before the break, we were talking about the fact that Assange is actually already being punished. You can go back at least a decade. If he was to be extradited, prosecuted, uh, sentenced, what's the average amount of time that people are often sentenced for cases like this? When you're looking at Assange comparing to other cases, I think realistically it could be anywhere from five to eight or nine years that Julian Assange will get as a sentence, probably. And he might not serve all of that. Maybe he would only be in prison for four years. But keep in mind, the pretrial process, because we're talking about classified information, is going to take as long as it did in Chelsea Manning's case. And I attended pretrial proceedings in her military court-martial for very close to two years. The first hearing was December 2011, and there wasn't a trial until June 2013. 
So the reason I'm bringing this up, of course, is to illustrate that it's not a stretch to say that Assange has already been punished before even being found guilty. And as the title of your forthcoming book, Guilty of Journalism, strongly suggests, the reality here is that, particularly from the United States, there's been a political case. Even if Assange, by the way, with these developments in Australia, civil society and free press organizations rallying, perhaps the Biden administration reconsidering, although I don't see a lot of evidence for that, even if he is not found guilty, he's already been a prisoner for a decade. What message does that send to journalists, especially independent journalists? What kind of message is that sending about doing journalism? Well, I believe it's enforcing a kind of discipline. I mean, it's letting people know that there are certain topics, national security or military matters, in which if you actually try to cover the truthful and honest material that shows what is really going on behind the scenes, and you don't just accept the talking points or our memos or what our spokespeople say to you on any given day, and you try to come up with your own reporting in a way that challenges and poses a threat to our ability to pursue this agenda without any scrutiny, without any pushback, without resistance from our allies, then you are going to be treated like Julian Assange. Let's use an actual example. Today is the anniversary. As we are recording this conversation, I'm speaking to you on January 11th. This is the 21st anniversary of Guantanamo Bay being open. This is something that Julian Assange played a role in exposing through the publication of detainee assessment briefs, the Guantanamo files that were provided by Chelsea Manning. One of the things we learned from these files is the extent to which just a few people who were being tortured and abused at Guantanamo were giving false confessions to military officers that were then being used to keep people in prison. At one point, you know, there was somewhere around 700 or so people in this prison. Now, at this point, there are 35 men. 20 of them are actually cleared for release, according to Andy Worthington, who is this fantastic journalist, who was also a witness in the extradition trial that was held against Julian Assange back in September 2020. I'm glad you mentioned Andy Worthington. I was going to give him a shout out on the, the great work that he's done around Guantanamo. But one of the things, your forthcoming book, Guilty of Journalism, at the very end, you've got kind of a convenient laundry list, a reminder of some of the many, many things that we actually have learned because of WikiLeaks, because of Julian Assange, and because of whistleblowers that risk their own lives and freedom to transparently tell the public what's actually going on to expose the lies of government and empire. I was just wondering maybe if you could rattle off a couple other things just to remind people. In that list that I put together, I, I made certain to pick these cables and other files that continue to have great implications for events that we see unfolding in our space. And no matter where you feel the U.S. should go in terms of some of these conflicts or in terms of some of these long-term issues, you cannot ignore the importance of what was disclosed. So we know that 
Bill Burns was an ambassador and he sent a cable about NATO's encirclement of Russia that pertains incredibly to what we've seen happening with the Ukraine war. We also have cables that show the extent to which Israel was trying to strangle Gaza and had a deliberate policy of bringing that territory to collapse, to the brink of collapse, um, the way in which they were using skunk water to go after Palestinian protesters who were standing up for human rights in the Palestinian territories. But also the one that I always find to be the most incredible is the cable that shows that I believe David Petraeus was involved in this meeting. And he essentially is talking to Yemen President Ali Abdullah Saleh, in which they make this agreement that in order to hide the drone warfare that is being engaged in in Yemen, Yemen is going to take credit and say that those bombs are ours and not the United States. So they're going to tell the world that they are attacking Al-Qaeda with drones and that it is not the U.S. that has pioneered this new form of extrajudicial killing. Kevin Gostolo, we need to wrap up this segment, but I know there's a, uh, one or two other things you wanted to get at. And also, I'd like it for you to please tell people how to find your work. Yeah, I just want to do a quick plug here on January 20th in Washington, D.C. You can tune in to this event that is being hosted by Progressive International. Amy Goodman is going to be moderating and they're all going to be this Belmarsh Tribunal uh, with Noam Chomsky, Daniel Ellsberg, both who were gracious enough to blurb my book, along with Stella Assange, Jeremy Corbyn. And uh, Stefania Marizzi, Ben Weisner of the ACLU, Jeffrey Sterling, a former uh, CIA employee and whistleblower, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, Kristen Harafson, Stephen Donziger. These are just some of the people you can tune in and see on this tribunal address the crimes that have been committed against the press by the U.S. government, and in particular, Julian Assange. This will be live streamed, and I'll be there doing that. And then you can find my work on the dissenter.org, the newsletter where I'm consistently providing updates on the WikiLeaks, on, on WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange's case, as well as other whistleblower stories. Kevin Gostola, you are managing editor, shadowproof.com, writer at The Dissenter. Your forthcoming book, Censored Press and Seven Stories Press, is Guilty of Journalism, the Political Case Against Julian Assange, with a foreword by Abby Martin. And you mentioned Noam Chomsky a moment ago. Chomsky said of your book, it is essential reading for those who care about freedom of expression and elementary justice. Kevin Gostola, thank you so much for joining us once again on the Project Censored show today. Up next on the Project Censored show, we welcome independent journalist Sam Husseini. We're going to talk about a contribution he made to the recent Project Censored book, Questioning Politico's News Conferences, an Underutilized Antidote to Censorship. We'll also talk about more of his reporting from COVID origins to big tech censorship and more. All coming up on the Project Censored show. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On the segment right now, we are welcoming independent journalist Sam Husseini. Sam Husseini is an independent journalist, and his work can be read on Substack at husseini.substack.com. That's H-U-S-S-E-I-N-I dot Substack dot com. Sam Husseini, welcome to the Project Censored show. You have a long history in independent journalism, so I wanted to talk a little bit about your contribution to the latest censored book on questioning politicos at news conferences, and you have quite a number of actually riveting stories to tell. Sam Husseini, welcome to the Project Censored show. Thanks so much, Mickey, for inviting me. Yeah, it was a pleasure to write that piece. Over the years, I'm you know here in Washington or just outside Washington now, and what I've tried to do as much as I possibly could was to ask tough questions of politicos in different venues, either at the press club or as uh, uh, I got into the State Department for a while and I hope to get back in there. One project was even as they walk out of the Sunday morning talk shows to go with a cameraman in tow and ask them tough questions. So I've done that over the years uh, on a wide variety of questions and subjects. One of my go-to questions is, do you acknowledge that Israel has nuclear weapons? Most politicos in D.C. will not acknowledge (laughs) that empirical reality. Elephant in the room, they can't talk about it. Even members of the squad won't forthrightly acknowledge that Israel has nuclear weapons. That's one thing that I've tried to do. In the process, Sam Husseini, you mentioned the issue of the lack of acknowledgement of Israeli nukes inside the Washington Beltway, even among progressives. I remember a story you had told a while ago, and it involved the late, great Helen Thomas, one of the one of the uh, high-profile uh, reporters in the Washington Press Pool, and some of the interactions you had with them and, and consequences. You want to share some of that, Sam Husseini? Yeah, I bump into Helen uh, occasionally uh, in D.C., either at the press club or at a restaurant that we both frequented. And one of our conversations, you know, I had been regularly asking about Israel nukes, and I asked her, has anybody ever asked a president this? Because I'd been asking officials and senators and congresspeople. And her face lit up and said, no. And I sort of glared at her like, well, why haven't you done it <laughs> since you're in there? And then sure enough, sometime later at Obama's first news conference, she asked him about Israel's nukes and he gave a ridiculous response. I don't want to speculate as if it's a matter of speculation for the president of the United States to talk about Israel having nuclear weapons. But she paid a price for that. She didn't get called on for like six months after that. And then I can't remember what she got called on for something after that. And then she didn't get called on for another, you know, and then, and then they finally, you know, booted her out of there. So I feel some sort of responsibility for her getting isolated. But I mean, it's what she should do. She should be asking the tough questions. But it highlights the corruption of how this all operates. If you ask really tough questions, you get blackballed. So, you know, anytime a journalist has access that's not a mark of something good. That's a mark of corruption. Sam, I also wanted to remind our listeners, Sam Husseini, I wanted to remind our listeners, this would jog their memory. You were actually kicked out of a trump Putin press conference in Helsinki in 2018. What I tried to do there was to hold up a little sign that just said nuclear weapon ban treaty, a treaty to try to abolish nuclear weapons or purports to, had been adopted by 122 countries. The group behind it had won the Nobel Peace Prize, but neither 
Trump nor Putin had been asked about it. So I tried to ask about it. And I was like, well, how the hell are they going to call on me? So I had a sign, uh, but security got wind that I had a sign because another reporter snitched on me and they eventually dragged me out of there. So I, I never got a chance to ask that question, but it did get some notoriety. Some people realized what was what was going on. You know, the First Amendment is use it or lose it. Every bit of the First Amendment that you possibly can. So I attempt to use every mechanism of journalism to their full extent. And that's the focus of what you wrote with us this year, questioning politicos at news conferences. I mean, it sounds almost tongue in cheek in a way. It sounds so obvious. But I think what you're getting at here and your own experience clearly illustrates this and including the anecdotes you just shared. Reporters that have access can easily lose it if they do ask legitimate or tough questions. Isn't that right, Sam Husseini? That certainly is right. Although, you know, sometimes they show both, you know, Acosta and Trump going at it and him pretending to be a tough journalist and Trump pretending to buck the establishment. I had done a lot to help, quote unquote, save democracy now. I mean, they have the mechanisms and the means and the funding to have somebody in the White House or the State Department where I've tried to go and other places. So I think that independent media needs to be scrutinized in this regard. We need to do a much better job if we want to get beyond talking to the choir and actually engaging in tough journalism. That needs to be part of the equation. And, you know, I used to go get into the press, into the State Department with the nation. Those days seem to have come to an end. And uh, it looks like flashpoints. Uh, I'm going to try to be getting in there with flashpoints. Our good friends, uh, Dennis Bernstein. Yeah, absolutely. Dennis Bernstein and the crew at flashpoints. Sam Husseini, given that maybe not everybody knows you as a household name, But I mean, I'm going to just quickly come back to Helen Thomas, people that were familiar with televised presidential politics, of course, they were pretty familiar with her as an iconic figure. And what I wanted to say is that not only have you experienced direct censorship, muzzling, being kicked out of of, of these places or denied access, but whenever it happens to even higher profile people than yourself, what kind of message do you think that's sending to your colleagues? There are certainly ways that the government can restrict access and questioning. But I think that a large onus has to fall on, you know, on the journalists. And a lot of my work has done a lot to criticize mainstream reporting. Um, you know, they sometimes they go after politicians for exactly the wrong reasons. For example, I've done a lot of work over the last three years, almost three years, on pandemic origins. And I think that there are deeper reasons for the problems in that coverage. But part of it is, oh, Trump said that it might come from a lab and therefore it can't possibly come from a lab. This kind of moronic, I'm sorry to say, knee jerk reaction in progressive and liberal quarters and large parts of the establishment media is horrible. But it goes beyond simple Trump derangement syndrome. There's a long legacy of deference to government backed scientists and it's particularly dangerous because so much of this so-called science is funded by the Pentagon and other government agencies that have military and geopolitical goals. So I, I, I think that this whole sphere of um, pandemic origins and so on is, is tied to biowarfare. Very few journalists have had the courage to frame it along those lines. Although ironically, Elon Musk, the other who I've also been critical of, the other day tweeted about so-called gain-of-function lab work, which is behind all of this, basically being biowarfare. Gain-of-function is a horrific euphemism. What it refers to that's gaining function is 
the pathogen. That is, it's a way of doing lab work that makes the pathogen either more lethal or more easily spread. So, Sam Husseini, one of the pieces on your substack is uh, gain-of-function lab work is a euphemism for bioweapons. Is Musk looking to end biowarfare or to give more power to the Pentagon and CIA? Can you unpack some of this for our listeners? And also, I definitely want to come back to the theme of anybody that had any questions about COVID policy, COVID origins. It really skewed very binary that anybody that asked questions was an automatic Trumper or MAGA hat wearer, which is, again, totally ludicrous. But you write about that, too. So let's try to get all of that in here and tell our listeners what you've been finding out. The partisan, in the worst sense of the word, lay of the land hinders people seeing anything resembling the truth. So you have Trump and company saying, oh, it came out of a lab, but then they immediately, like Tom Cotton, will demonize, say it's it's China's fault, maybe it's Fauci's fault, instead of looking at the deeper systemic issues of the U.S. in effect covertly, but not really that covertly, violating the Bioweapons Convention by doing this dangerous lab work, especially since 9-11. People may remember the anthrax attacks following 9-11. They ironically, dramatically escalated this dangerous lab work. And meanwhile, progressives and liberals are out to lunch, denying that it exists at all, while conservatives are simply trying to weaponize it. So it's a real problem of how these subjects are talked about. Now, Musk finally talked about it in a direct way. It's just in one tweet. I was kind of astonishing that he just said one tweet about this and then never followed up on it. The Twitter files have not really fleshed this out at all. But him raising that subject could be a good thing, but it could be a horrific thing because there are strains within the Republican Party that are critiquing how the U.S. government is dealing with. COVID origins, and their critique is, oh, this has largely been overseen by the NIH and USAID, which is part of the State Department, which many lefties historically have viewed as sort of a soft power CIA mechanism, USAID. And it shouldn't be under their jurisdiction. It should be completely under the Pentagon or the CIA. Now, it's already largely under the Pentagon and the CIA but they want it to be completely under the Pentagon and the CIA. So I could easily see Musk, what he's putting out there, in effect being a a reflection of that right-wing thinking that could actually conceivably make the situation worse so it becomes completely under military purview. You also mentioned anthrax after 9-11. You also wrote about Francis Boyle, uh, who has been very critical of a history of, of these and related issues and, of course, was also criticized for going on places like the the Alex Jones program. And I mean, we, we, we could talk about obvious issues around that. You write that people should be looking at arguments and evidence, not just where they are, and maybe even asking bigger questions about why certain people just don't get access, even though they have cogent, fact-based, transparently sourced information to share about key issues. Correct. I mean, Francis Boyle wrote the U.S. implementing legislation for the Bioweapons Convention, which unanimously passed the Senate in 1989. He immediately after the pandemic started, said he thought that as soon as he learned that it's funny, I I got an email from him, I think on January 25th, 2020, before the pandemic was a pandemic, but after the outbreak. 
And he said he's got a biowarfare list with maybe 20 people on it. And he says, somebody should check if there's a lab near Wuhan where the outbreak started. And I didn't bother checking. I was too tied up you know, dealing with something about the election or something like that. And then the next day, I get another email from him. Bingo, <laughs> there is a lab in Wuhan. So at that point, he started saying that he thought that it came out of a lab and he got no mainstream pickup whatsoever. The AP did a hit piece on him for it, and no progressive media even would have him on. So Alex Jones knocks at his door. He's going to say yes. I mean, get real. I think that that, is, again, is a failure of liberal progressive media. If they want to criticize Boyle for getting on Alex Jones, I think that that's just uh, another reason to look in the mirror. We're speaking with independent journalist Sam Husseini, and we're going to continue our conversation after this brief musical break. We're going to share more on Sam Husseini's investigative reporting on pandemic origins, some of the challenges we've seen in media covering these kinds of controversial issues. And we're also going to talk about big tech censorship. So please stay tuned. We'll continue our conversation with independent journalist Sam Husseini after this brief musical break. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment, we're speaking with independent journalist Sam Husseini. He contributed a piece to the recent Project Censored book, Questioning Politicos at News Conferences, an Underutilized Antidote to Censorship. We're talking about Sam Husseini's work. You can follow him at Substack. It's husseini.substack.com, H-U-S-S-E-I-N-I. Sam Husseini, before the break, we were talking about some of the challenges we have during the Trump presidency, any mention of gain of function or any mention of pandemic origin that veered from the official narrative and the CDC ideas about the wet market in China and so on, were just automatically rejected as Trumpian propaganda. But where you left off, I want to add that after the 2020 election, There was somewhat of a mea culpa in a lot of the establishment media and even among major media scholars that said, wait a minute, the way in which we covered this got sucked into the circus frame of of the Trump derangement syndrome and the red versus blue problem where we stop looking at evidence and stop asking critical questions. So can you talk a little bit more about some of that shift and some of your research and what it suggests? I would say it wasn't that much of a shift and it wasn't that deep of a mea culpa in part because you had after biden got in there you had the cia and other agencies start to adopt openly adopt the view that it could have come out of a lab so i think in part the shift was a reflection of that with trump out these mechanisms of the establishment more explicitly adopted that possibility. You know, people were blackballed, shut out of Twitter and Facebook for talking about it. As I mentioned to Whitney Webb at the time, I stopped tweeting about certain things because I knew I would get censored and I don't want to lose my Twitter account because it's a repository of information for me at this point. It's a very unfortunate circumstance that way. 
So have this system of speech that restricts what we say. Well, self-censorship. Absolutely. Certainly part of the package. It's like you're an animal and you get prodded when you do certain things, but you're going to stop doing them. You get zapped. So I think that that's part of what's going on here, and it's continuing. The sands are shifting somewhat, but the basic mechanism is continuing under Elon Musk. And I would say that it's taking on nefarious forms. My line for Trump is that Trump was the opposable thumb of the establishment. He seemed to be against it, but he just helps it grab more. And I think that in certain ways, Elon Musk is the same way. Brandishing honesty, he's actually making things more explicit. For example, he explicitly said, freedom of speech, not freedom of reach, meaning that you get to say what you want, but we might make sure that virtually nobody hears it. You know, it's funny, we're on Pacifica here. I first heard about this concept with old Lou Hill, a founder of Pacifica tape, somebody gave me during the Pacifica fight of 20 years ago, where he talked about that there's one thing more important than freedom of speech, and that's the freedom to hear. That is, the public has a right to hear novel ideas. Well, and to be openly debated and discussed and to see where the facts are. And, and, and this is what media, this is what the free press is purportedly supposed to be doing, help model those debates and lead those investigations. Right, Sam Husseini? Absolutely. And, what uh, you know, I recently dug into that with the advent of Twitter. It, it's actually been in Supreme Court decisions. It's in Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They explicitly talk about the right to receive information, not just the right to speak. So it's it's been codified. I think that there's still incredible, incredible hurdles with the very serious issue of pandemic origins. There's a tremendous rush in certain media quarters to sweep it all under the rug to keep it in these partisan boxes. And meanwhile, I've been going full hog, if I if I can delve into this, investigating. There are so many layers of control. One layer of control is the scientists who told us at the beginning of the pandemic that it couldn't come out of a lab. There were two pillars for this disinformation. One was a letter in the Lancet, which was organized by Peter Daszak, head of EcoHealth Alliance, which actually funded the lab in Wuhan and which would be directly implicated as responsible for a lab release. Him and his circles, that was one pillar. And the other pillar was an article that appeared in Nature Medicine in April of 2020, a month or two after the Lancet. You mentioned that the EcoHealth Alliance funded the Wuhan Institute of Virologies to the tune of $100 million in USAID, Pentagon, and NIH. That's the total amount of money that EcoHealth Alliance got from the Pentagon and USAID, $100 million. A smaller portion of that went to the Wuhan Institute and their partner, Ralph Barrick at North Carolina. There were, there were other scientists involved. But it just highlighted how much of this is militarized work. You know, it has this earthy, crunchy veneer, but it's baloney. Uh, this is a military project in large part. Talk a little bit more then about what you've been finding, because you've been one of the few people that's really stuck with this story and have started looking, even as the baselines shift, that's part of a potential tactic of normalizing. Well, maybe that did happen, but moving right along, you're still looking at this. So tell us a little bit more about what you're finding. One major finding, I, I recently wrote a very lengthy piece with Jonathan Latham, who's a virologist who works at the Bioscience Resource Project, and we examined the Ebola outbreak in 2014. 
Africans at the time were claiming that it might have come from U.S. labs in Sierra Leone. Well, why did we investigate that and why did we investigate it now? It's because that second pillar that I was talking about, the Nature Medicine article that purported to show in the spring of 2020 that COVID could not have come from a lab. The main two authors of that are Robert Gary at Tulane and Christian Anderson at Scripps Research. They happen to be the president and vice president of that lab consortium in West Africa. That is, they would be implicated if it were proven that those U.S. labs were in fact responsible for the 2014 Ebola outbreak. So imagine a world where in early 2020, the public understood that the pandemic, which was ravishing life on Earth, did indeed come out of a lab or may well have come out of a lab. One of the first questions would be, what about prior outbreaks? And that would go to their doorstep. Sam Husseini, it could also be accidental. You had mentioned it doesn't have to be nefariously released as a weapon, but I mean, even if it might be research for that purpose. But the point is, is there's a lot of questions that just aren't being asked. I'm agnostic and adamantly agnostic as to whether it's intentional release or accidental release. And I've advised people not, for example, to use the term lab leak because lab leak implies accident. I don't know if it was accident. I don't know if it was intentional. What's needed is full disclosure and transparency, and particularly in this. People think of biowarfare as a poor man's weapon. That's wrong. Biowarfare has a unique property that other weapons do not, and that's deniability. Nice country you got there. Too bad if there might be a, you know, an outbreak of a major disease. The U.S. has apparently used this in respect to Cuba, for example. So all the more reason why there needs to be full transparency in these institutions. So, you know, examining the connections of the scientists, their funding patterns, their prior outbreaks has been a major focus of my work the last year or so to get beyond the partisan bickering. This isn't a story about let's bash China. This isn't a story, let's bury our heads in the sand to this existential threat to humanity because it might prove Trump right. Those are both ridiculous positions. What's needed to be done is to roll up our sleeves and dig up what the facts are. You've also written about the redefinition of gain of function as a, as a, a euphemistic term, and you talk about the Obama administration putting a pause on this, but then it, it comes back. Can you talk a little bit about how that plays a role in the debate and the media coverage? There are so many tie-ins with the Ebola outbreak. People might have heard about Obama putting a pause on gain-of-function, this dangerous lab work in 2014. He didn't actually stop the work. He just stopped federal funding. But even that stopping the funding had exemptions. And one of the exemptions was the work that was funded at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But the really kicker that I found in my recent investigation is that I think it was October 17th, 2014, is when that pause and funding was instituted. It was also the ex exact same day that Ron Klein was made Ebola czar by the Obama administration. So that indicates that the Obama administration might have perceived that the Ebola outbreak 
did have lab origins, and that was their motivation for putting that pause in place. Nobody else had drawn that connection before, to my knowledge. This is particularly significant now because Ron Klein, who's then made Ebola czar, is now chief of staff of the Biden administration. Biden's former science advisor, Eric Landers, who's head of the of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, he was responsible for the phylogenetic analysis of the Ebola outbreak. And my colleague, Jonathan Latham, reviewed his work and found it extremely suspect. The way that the phylogenetic analysis was done seems to have been done in a way to frame Guinea rather than Sierra Leone to pretend that the outbreak had to have started in neighboring Guinea rather than in Sierra Leone, where the labs were. So there seems to have been, there's substantial evidence that there was a concerted effort in the scientific community to cover up the possibility of lab origin in 2014, just as there seems to have been, there definitely was, an effort to cover up the possibility with COVID. So we're talking about a mechanism here that is attempting to distract from the public the possibility that we have a biowarfare arms race going on that is an existential threat to humanity. And also to control narratives. Um, we don't have time to get into Philip Zelikow, who was the executive director of the 9-11 Commission, but you noted his return to look at pandemic origins. Again, another figure that was tasked with creating a grand narrative around 9-11. Of course, there have been many problems with the 9-11 Commission that he oversaw. We don't have time to get into that now, but in the, the remaining minute we have, I wanted to return, Sam Husseini, to, to the piece and to the concept that you brought up for the Project Censored book this year. And again, it goes back to the, to the importance of asking the right questions. And one way to really push back against censorship is to demand information that we have a right to and to ask the tough questions. So, Sam Husseini, do you have any prescriptions about how we might be able to improve this press system and how can people be empowered to ask these tough questions? Ask your local officials, Congress members at meetings instead of just taking a pass or whatever. When there's a local meeting with a Congress member, take the opportunity to be asking them sharp, tough questions, videotaping it, putting it out there in whatever way you can. And hopefully that creates a culture of accountability. We don't need free speech so much as we need accountable speech. Right now, we have a system where people who are powerful just get away with saying whatever the lie they want, and they never be held accountable. Let's do research about these individuals and confront them with facts and move on from there. I think that uh, we need to create a whole new culture of, of how we deal with these issues. Representative George Santos comes to mind, Sam Husseini. The proverbial tip of the iceberg. Epic media failure, in my view. At any rate, Sam Husseini, you are an independent journalist. Your work can be found at husseini.substack.com, H-U-S-S-E-I-N-I. Thanks so much for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Thank you so much, Mickey. We want to smash, crash, smash, smash, blast the system. We want to get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd out. This pumping rhythm is hitting. We want to make it clear. We ain't scared. This is the vision we want. We want, we want, we want. Well, that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show today. And again, you're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. Since 2010, we've aired out of the historic KPFA studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Mickey Huff, executive director and founding co-host of the program with Dr. Peter Phillips, our former director. 
Eleanor Goldfield is our current co-host and an associate producer. Anthony Fest is our senior producer and the man behind the curtain. The Project Censored show airs on some 50 stations around the U.S. and is available as a podcast streaming online. To learn more about our work fighting against media censorship, our support for a truly free and independent press, and our curriculum around critical media literacy education, go to projectcensored.org. Please like and follow us on social media while you still can before we're deplatformed or further shadow banned by big tech censors. You can contact us about our work, suggest future show topics and guests, or provide constructive feedback through our site, projectcensored.org. You can also see more of our work at our publishing imprint, censoredpress.org. Last but not least, thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in. We're grateful you spent some time with us for today's program. I'd like to wrap with a closing quote from the late great media critic Jennifer Stone, who used to sign off her long-running KPFA program, Stone's Throw, by reminding listeners, until next time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Thank you, Jennifer Stone. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. The mission we want to crowd that fist pumping.